0: Hello, you are listening to the very first episode of The Franchise Guys. We are a podcast that looks at film franchises with a very ridiculous degree of passion and intensity, but that's why you'll want to listen to it if you enjoyed our first show. It's always Friday the 13th. You're going to get that similar type of goodness, and if you're with us for the first time, I hope you like it. My name is John Evans. I'm joined by Vikram Wheat, Michael T. Kuchek. We are all relatively active Hollywood professionals or former Hollywood professionals. <laughs> 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 Screenwriters and generally uh, creative dudes. How you guys doing today?
1: I'm excellent. Uh, you know, I, I, I should throw out there, just by way of introduction to our audience, Um Uh, The show kind of came out of the fact that uh, when we were doing It's Always Friday the 13th, every episode was uh, an in-depth examination of a different film in the Friday the 13th franchise. And as we got closer and closer to the end, uh, we got more and more uh, people asking us, you know, what's going to come next? What are you guys going to do after you run out of Friday the 13th movies? And, well, this is it. This is what we're going to do. Because uh, uh, it was just like kind of such a cool format that we're like, you know, let's apply it to other franchises. And here we are.
0: Yes, and we're starting with a doozy. Vic, how are you doing today, by the I'm way? I'm
2: doing fantastic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow one of uh, my favorite lines of Mike's and say that I am filled with the joy of life today. Yes. <laughs> uh. yes.
0: Well, today we're looking at a movie that's our best one since Jason Takes Manhattan. The quality level is is very high on this film. <laughs> That's a joke. Jason Takes Manhattan is not a good movie. Ah. But Alien is. Yeah. That's right. Our inaugural edition focuses on uh, what's generally regarded as one of the best sci-fi horror films, if not the best sci-fi horror film of all time. Ridley Scott's Alien.
1: Hell Yeah. Uh, and I, I think with uh, this whole franchise, the, this the arc of this franchise that we're going to do, we're also going to mix in the Predator films because mix. I, I kind of the same way that we started mixing in the Nightmare on Elm Street films.
2: I think it actually does make this kind of the natural extension of what we were doing with Friday the Thirteenth because Freddy versus Jason really introduced the versus idea, I think, into uh, into the the popular culture. So of course, Aliens builds to Aliens versus Predator um mm-hmm. it'll be it'll be interesting to see how these two franchises tie together uh, across the decades to wind up at that uh, not terribly successful place but <laughs>
0: <laughs> i think when we get to the alien versus predator films uh it will feel a little bit more like talking about friday the 13th sequels but at least we've got a lot of great classic films to look at uh, early on in both of these franchises. Um, I think Predator probably only goes one um, classic film, but I did enjoy Predator 2 as a kid, so I'm, I'm still optimistic that there will be a lot of goodness to be found there. But yeah, just again, to be clear, we're going to go through the all the Alien films, the original films, uh, all the predator films, the versus films and any sequels that get made, um, in the next year or two, I'm sure we'll double back and, and look at them. We'll look at Prometheus. So this is going to be a pretty epic undertaking and I'm very excited about it. What's sort of your initial childhood relationship with this film? Did it scare the crap out of you? Did you watch it at a
1: sleepover? I mean, what was the situation? Do you recall? My first exposure to alien ever was I saw a toy commercial in the course of, I think, Saturday morning cartoons for the alien. And not a whole lot of people believe me about this, but I swear to God, they were selling a, an, an alien action figure in which it was, there's Ripley and she's in a dark room and another is like waving a flashlight around and another kid has an alien and they're stalking around, uh, hunting the other uh, uh, action figures. And I'm like, oh my god, this this looks amazing. And uh, oh wow, there's a movie attached to it too, but it was rated R. I wasn't allowed to see it because I was too young when it came out. Uh, I eventually caught up with it, uh, I think on tape or cable, I forgot which. And yeah, it scared the fucking
2: shit out of me <laughs> when I was a younger boy. Scorny Weaver has a line in the, the third Alien film, I think, where she says to the alien you you've been in my life so long i i can't remember anything else um, <laughs> and that's kind of how i feel about these movies i couldn't tell you the first time i watched them except that I mean they were favorites in my house growing up my my mother my stepfather both loved them uh my father was not a, a horror movie person so they didn't come up on that side much but we watched I mean, I distinctly remember doing Alien and Aliens double features on VHS at eight, maybe. Uh, I mean, very, very young. Um, my parents loved Sigourney Weaver. Uh, my stepfather said many inappropriate things about uh, the scenes of her in her underwear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. It's it's almost one of those things where I don't remember being terrified of it. I think because I probably didn't understand enough about what was going on when I was watching it. A, little bit, a similar experience with The Shining where it wasn't until I watched it sort of in middle school or, or, you know, freshman year of high school that I went, holy shit, this is scary. Um, this is what I've been watching the whole time? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, very, very ingrained in me uh, as a as a film franchise for sure.
0: Yeah, I think I actually saw it after I saw Aliens in the theater. Uh, So I was 11 when I saw Aliens, and it blew me away, and I found that terrifying. And shortly thereafter, we doubled back and watched the original on home video. It was even scarier, obviously. It's more of a horror film than the second one. And I loved it. But over the years, I mean, I'll just say right off the top that I'm an aliens guy more than alien. And I think that Mike and I plan to lock horns over this issue. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
2: well, you, know, <laughs> you know, and it's
1: I as don't a subjective thing. And, and yeah. because I mean, they're both 11s on the 10 scale. Right. And, and when you have two movies that are so fucking good, uh, and only differ in their approach to the material, it really is like the, the, the most purely subjective argument that can be made, you know? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's not like I'm going to diss the first one. Well, I mean, a little bit actually, but, um, and you're not going to, you know, take aliens apart, uh, with a hammer and chisel, but, uh, there, you know, the watchability thing is, is one of those factors in a sense, like we always talk about Big Lebowski being something that, you know, you can watch every night if you wanted to, and, you know, you you wouldn't get sick of it very quickly. Well, for me, Aliens has a lot of replayability, whereas I think that you have to be more in the mood for the first one. I think it requires a little more patience. I mean, obviously, it's slow-paced, and it's just not a slam-bam, thank-you-ma'am kind of an experience.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I, in you know, my, my overall thought on watching it again, and I, I, I realized I had actually rewatched it not that long ago, like maybe about a year ago or so. So it's like, you know, sometimes when you rewatch these like, things, I mean especially when we're doing like Friday the 13th, like a lot of those films I hadn't seen since I was, you know, in, in seventh grade, you know. So it's like, I mean, this one was, you know, way more of a movie that I've, I've stayed on top of throughout the years. And, um, you know, but it's, it was long enough for me to kind of start picking up on things that I hadn't. I noticed before, but I had not quite thought about before. And um, but overall, one of the things that I love so much about this movie is, in, it fits squarely in the same realm, the same pantheon as The Shining and The Exorcist. As they are, it is a horror movie about adults, by adults, for adults. You know, mm-hmm. uh, all three of those films demand a certain level of uh, audience sophistication, patience as it builds a sense of dread. Uh, I mean, obviously there are jump scares, but they're always earned. Um, yeah, you know, we, we are, uh, you know, dealing with uh, mature characters. Uh, they are, they're grown are with jobs. You know, none of them are teenagers, you know, who are just kind of hanging around waiting to get killed by something. You know, I, I, and they're, Personalities uh, are well developed on the screen. You know, it's—I mean, it's—you uh, don't get a whole lot of these. Is my point, and uh, and when you do get them, they often tend to rise to the top of of scariest movies ever.
2: A lot of what uh, Mike said really resonates with me in terms of the the time that is spent getting to the parts that are scary, the parts that make your pulse race. And not just—I mean—I think if you're looking in particular, I think at the, the *Exorcist* and *The Shining*. A lot of that is character development. Uh, you know, you're, you're you're investing in the characters and their relationships and their backstories and things, which is uh, vital, I think, to to identifying with the characters and making it scary. What's interesting about this is that the—I think—that time is spent much more developing mood because we don't get a lot of backstory about the characters. That's right. I mean, the the, the biggest interpersonal conflict is just, uh, Harry Dean Stanton and Yathakota Kota wanting more money for their work. Um, <laughs> and so I, it seems interesting to me that because it, it is effective and it does demand patience, but that patience is, it's really in the service of those long, languorous shots of the, you know, the Nostromo moving through space. And I mean the, all the amazing shots of them, uh, approaching the alien ship and all that kind of stuff. Um, I I agree that it fits very much in that uh, grown up mold of genre film, uh, but it stands apart from it in some ways too. Going to like screenwriting ishness.
1: Uh, the two the two other things that I love about this movie that I, I always used to love before, and now that I've I've you know worked in the industry for a while. Two things that really stand out to me and watching this movie again is something that I thought of when you were speaking, Vic. Uh there is zero exposition in this film. The most exposition that we get is uh at the top when we get a screen crawl is an astromo, it's flying through space, it's got some ore, and that's it. You know, there are no lengthy conversations about shit that happened to people when they were kids. There's no uh, you know, clunky exposition shoved into the, 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 the conversation. I mean, the dialogue is as naturalistic as any that I've, that I've encountered. You know, I they really are just grown-up professionals in a situation just talking to each other as they would. And uh, that's how their personalities come out, not through, you know, these clunky backstories that a lot of scripty-type people demand, but just by watching them do their thing and react to their situation. You know, that and um kind of per that, you know, there's no scripty dialogue at all. Like like no one's going completely out of their way to be artificially clever, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, and, and if a character says something that's interesting or clever, it's because the character is interesting and they said something clever. Not because you know, the screenplay came back with a note from the producer that said,
2: you know, need a dialogue punch up. This is not a this is not a Joss Whedon science fiction film.
1: For instance when we're watching uh, you know the Friday Thirteenth movies, like Friday Thirteenth Part Six, is in some in many ways like the best of them all. But at the same time, like it's re- it's very clearly a screenplay that's like kind of a product of of its time because the dialogue is really artificial. It's very very scripty, and this and Alien is at the exact opposite end of it. I would say that one of the other things that makes this movie so special is the fact that I don't think that before and very very rarely since. Uh, was there a movie in which you took a horror approach on a really hard sci-fi film? You know, I, I in, a, in a lot of ways, this is kind of the horror version of 2001.
0: Well, I think it was designed with that in mind. Uh, I think that there, there's a lot of backstory to be delved into with this film and how it originated with the the writing and all of that, and, and how the, the factors that combine to make it so naturalistic, as you said. And I think one of them is that it kind of comes out of the 70s where generally films, American films, had a more natural vernacular and actors improv more and, you know, sort of coming out of Robert Altman-style overlapping dialogue and things like that where you're just sort of overhearing people and, and there was a real emphasis on avoiding stagey or scripty as you put it um you know constructed dialogue so I think that worked in its favor it's interesting though doubling back to the origin of the film so as most people know but maybe not everyone uh John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon went to USC together and they had made a film called Dark Star and it was kind of this film put through a comedic lens, you could say, because they didn't have any budget, and they had a beach ball for an alien, and <laughs> yeah, it, <dude. laughs> which Mike loves.
1: Dude, the uh, first I, I will say the first time uh, I, I ever watched Dark Star, uh, when that beach ball shows up, I, I, I laugh for like thirty minutes solid. I, 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 I was laughing so hard I stopped making noise,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and. With this one, like Dan O'Bannon wanted to write a serious take on it. And he wanted a real alien. And he had about 30 pages, uh, like which is still like the first 30 minutes or 20 minutes of, of this film uh, as it was produced. And he didn't really have the alien, though. And fortunately, he was also working uh, with Jodorowsky on Dune. And there were some really talented artists that were sort of helping out uh, on that film. And I think that part of what makes this movie so amazing is that there's basically three really, really talented sci-fi and horror minds uh, that were artists, conceptual artists, that created much of the look of this film. And obviously Giger handled the alien itself. And Ron Cobb and a guy named Chris Foss, I believe, uh, were responsible for the ship. Both the One guy did the exteriors and the other guy did the interiors. And, you know, these, these are really, really gifted people. And I think that Ridley Scott is, is an amazing visual director. I mean, like, the way that he composes shots and lights them and moves the camera it's, you know, he's one of the greats. And this film, he, he just took what they gave him and created, like, unbelievably indelible shots. I mean, the editor on this film said that when he would look at the footage, it was like walking through an art museum. And he just wanted, you know, his challenge was just not using stuff because it was all so gorgeous that he wanted to put it in. And interestingly, there were cuts of this movie that were, like, Three and four hours long, so if you want slow paced, <laughs> find that version.
1: Yeah, but well, I, I I will say that uh, one of the other many things that you know jumped out at me while I was watching this movie again is uh, I, and again something I'd noticed before, but I was really appreciating uh, with this watch through was um the production design. I, I, I lo- the Nostromo is amazing, and uh, I, I I love the fact that it's it's basically a beat up. Eighteen wheeler truck of uh, of a ship, you know. Um, and I, I was actually surprised by. And you know, see, here's the thing too: is like uh, you know, Harry Dean Sand and Yafikoto, They're they're complaining about the fact that they're only getting half shares, right? Uh, as comp- as compared to the other guys, and uh, because you know they work just as hard and la la. Because see, here's the thing: is like the Nostromo is is a massive, massive, massive spaceship, and it falls to two guys. To be able to fix anything on that ship, you know, it's not like they're they're just fixing like a big block engine. It's like it's a spaceship, and they can fix anything on it. And, I, and that's like, dude, give those guys full shares, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's also the sound. I, I, I mean, you know, they're they're in the wrong because they're complaining the wrong guy. You know, I mean, they're they're bitching at Dallas and Ripley, and it's just like we work for the company too. What do you want us to do? Yeah, you know I mean, it's like bitching your your assistant manager at Starbucks for a race. It's like, well, you, you know, I, I get it; they're above you, but you know, you're just blown out of steam. But uh, uh, that and the sound design, um, there's, I I, I I would say that about a fifty percent of of the scares in this film because it's it's so uh, patient. Uh, a lot of it uh, is the sound design. Uh, you know, the the weird uh, beeps and groans throughout the ship. I mean, especially the sirens at the very end of it. But I mean, also it's like you know when they first land and that hatch opens and they're immediately hit with this crazed hurricane. You know, you're immediately you know informed at like a, a molecular level that this is a haunted place. You know, and it's like it's uh wonderful on every level.
0: Oh yeah, I, w- I never finished the origin of the of the oh, project yeah. okay. in the sense that. Uh, He didn't have an alien, right? But he then worked on this film where Giger wasn't involved, but I believe Foss and uh, that artist known as Mobius, probably we know him from comic books primarily. Um, They were working on that film, which of course is its own story and has a documentary, which I haven't seen yet. And I was going to watch last night if I had enough time, but I didn't get around to it. Uh, The Dune was never made um, with Jodorowsky. And so these guys... Did meet and once they saw, um, once Obannon saw that alien design and showed that to Ridley Scott, I believe uh, is how it worked out. They're like, "Holy shit, we know what that's going to look like." Um, And I think that the chest burster thing that was the work of uh, Ron Shuset or Shuset, I think is actually how you're supposed to say that, and he just. It came up with that master stroke concept that this thing, like he, he, I think he said, uh, what if it rapes you, you know, what if it, it screws you um, and it jumps on you and implants this egg into your body. And that's how the alien gets onto the ship because they were stuck on. How does the alien get onto the ship? And obviously, you know, there are at least six to eight movies that you can point to like planet of the vampires and other films, that um, the script took DNA from, but all of those elements combined into an original mix, and then they brought on David Geiler and Walter Hill, who did a rewrite, and I think that's where all of the dialogue and characters were rewritten. And we all know Walter Hill did The Warriors, and he had... You know, in 48 Hours, Southern Comfort were films that he was uh, doing either before this or or soon thereafter, and I think that that naturalistic dialogue, the sort of blue collar truckers in space thing, I'm not sure that Obannon. I haven't read Obannon's script, but generally, he was not given credit for that. So that's just another element of this collaboration that all of these talented people with different gifts everything synced up on this film and what they were good at was applied. What they were not as good at, someone else stepped in and, you know, I mean, you wouldn't have had Giger doing the ships and you wouldn't have had, you know, Ron Cobb's alien was kind of lame, but he designed that those amazing uh, hallways and doors and the hydraulics of, of the, of the Nostromo that are amazing. So it, it really is one of those kind of lightning in a bottle things where you know, you just have a bunch of brilliant people and it ends up being a film greater than the sum of its parts.
1: Absolutely. You know, I, I just as a, a little bit of research, I decided to jump online and uh, pull up uh, the critical response when it first came out and uh, extremely mixed. Uh, there were a ton of I, I, either shitty or uh, you know, middle of the road reviews. Like Ebert generally liked it, of course, because Ebert was a fucking badass and the best of his kind and is with a, a heavy heart that we carry his loss. But, um, yeah, like I, I, and a lot of critics, you know, jumped all over it, man. I mean, like some of them will be like, well, the technical aspects are OK, I guess. But, you know, it's just a stupid thing. It's a you know, they, they, they frequently really called, called it a stupid cash grab of a movie. You know, uh, uh, as if it was like, you know, some dumbfound footage film of its day, you know? And it's just like, you know, I, 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 I rolled my eyes at all of them. My eyes are rolled. Even,
0: <laughs> even Ebert though said, uh, on sneak previews that it was a haunted house movie in space. And at the time he did not put it in, in the canon of great sci-fi films. Incidentally, Fox rushed it into production because Star Wars was such a hit. Mm -hmm. So, and they had one of the art, the art director was, uh, he, he worked on Star Wars. So there was a somewhat cynical aspect to how the movie got made. You know I mean? It it definitely was, do we have any sci-fi scripts? And you know, that was the one sitting on Alan Ladd Jr.'s desk at Fox. And so they made the movie. But, um, sometimes
1: commerce helps out the art. You know, because yep. I, I ain't mean, for all we know. If it wasn't for the commercial success of Star Wars, an alien wouldn't have gotten made. So you never know, man. Vic, I, I, I any, the-
0: any thoughts on um, the history of the film, the backstory, how it came together, um, allusions to Star Wars or 2001?
2: Well, it is the, the, just from what you guys have been talking about, the perfect examples of, of studios learning the absolutely wrong lesson from, you know, the success mm-hmm. of Star Wars, because you can't imagine a science fiction film, more different from Star Wars than Alien. Um, sure. I do think that the, and I'm sure we'll get into this more, but the uh, the cast is one of the astonishing things about this. You talked about the way that everything came together so perfectly. Uh, and I know that uh, John Hurt, I think, yeah, actually initially uh, couldn't, couldn't do it and was, was in South Africa working on something else. And they cast John Finch instead. But then he got diagnosed with diabetes and had to drop out and and hurts uh, the project. He was working on Fell Apart, and so it just worked out. And, I mean, you think about all the, the fortuitous things that had to happen. I mean, Sigourney Weaver, this was her first film, I believe. First, certainly her first major role in a film. Yeah, I believe uh, so. I mean uh, – She was a
0: Broadway actress.
2: But coming out of – again, coming out of the, the 70s and the, the naturalistic dialogue and everything else that you were able to pull together – John Hurt and Harry Dean Stanton and Ian Holm and Yafik Kodo, uh Kodo. Uh, Veronica I mean, Cartwright, Veronica Cartwright, Tom. Scar- I mean, Tom Skerritt. What a bizarre career that guy's had. But um, <laughs> I mean, it's like you know, he's he's, just, he's had like this handful of classic movies, and then you know, a lot of movies with Christopher Lambert. Like, um, <laughs> I, but uh, that you got all these these actors who could play. The naturalistic dialogue, the overlapping stuff—I love the scenes of them all eating at the the breakfast table uh, uh, and all that kind of stuff. It does have the that feel of uh, you know an, an Altman film in the way some of that stuff plays, uh, and that's I think because you have a couple of, of Altman alums and and uh, and just wonderful actors that. That's what was that's what was around in the seventies. you did that, Ridley Scott
0: said that uh, he cast those that level of actors so he wouldn't have to really put his time into directing them. Mm-hmm. And he really focused on the visuals on this film and did not really work with the actors much. And I think that it was wise of him to get people who could handle that, even though apparently initially the cast was very skeptical of Sigourney Weaver and because she was the least accomplished of them. And a lot of the tensions between the cast members uh, ended up benefiting the performance because they, you know, that distance with with her is palpable in the film, and it's appropriate to the characters.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I, I will say, uh, you know, those mess hall scenes uh, are are truly wonderful in the sense that they ground the movie, uh, especially for the audience, because it's like you know the audience. Doesn't know what it's like to fly a spaceship. They don't know what it's like to uh, be in cryogenic slumber or to explore an alien planet. Speak they, for yourself, dude. Yeah, I know. Well, I, I know there's that, but but I, I but everyone knows what it is to hang around the table and and stuff your face and shoot the shit. You know, I mean, especially in, in this very, you know, like an oil, a gang of oil rig workers. You know, they're they're in the yeah. mess hall. They're just kind of shooting the shit. You know, just hanging around. They're joking around. And you know, I, I mean, when everyone's together like this, this is when, you know, the captain will go. You know, all right, away, hey, listen up, we've got a weather report, da 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 da, you know, the uh, word from corpus just come in, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I mean it's extremely grounded and gives you, you know, that, that lived in uh very human feel. You know, that that and, and I love the fact that the first truly horrible thing happens in the mess hall. You know, it's like, you know, mm-hmm. Scott takes the you know, the one element that's like the most grounded and that's the first to be like truly invaded by the alien.
2: I found myself trying to imagine what it would be like to watch this scene when, you know, the alien bursts out of John Hurt's chest for the first time. Like, to go into the movie theater and watch it and not know what was getting ready to happen. I, I feel like it. just in retrospect, it's a scene that the true horror of it has just been dampened by time and space balls and uh, – repetition and and just how influential the film is that to sit there for the first time and watch it like i feel like there there must have been people fainting
0: um well uh, the producers indicated as much i mean there this was one of those films that in the test screening you know an usher did faint and it wasn't that scene it was actually when ash's head gets knocked off um apparently people like with this scene, they were just frozen. Like, it all happened so suddenly, and it's so shocking that people just, you know, almost didn't have time to react. Uh, but I agree, and I think that it is it is somewhat sad, you know, that we can experience that. And for me, I enjoyed the movie less because of the fact that it is so familiar. And I know everything that's going to happen before it happens. Like, there really nothing surprises me in this movie anymore uh i just i know exactly what's going to happen so the tension is somewhat dissipated and another thing that i wanted to mention that the awe and wonder of the space technology was another thing that at that time we had not seen much it did have a similar aesthetic to star wars in that the ships are grungy i mean like the millennium falcon everything is is more beat up and dirty and dusty and 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 that uh, grounds it but I think there was an awe and wonder here a little bit like 2001 and seeing these these crafts that were represented in such a convincing way I mean the special effects really do hold up but we've seen so many ships and spacesuits and airlocks and you know hatches and and uh, landing gears and things that uh I don't I didn't feel the wonder that I that I did when I was a kid. Did you guys like watching this film, how much is lost for you uh in twenty sixteen?
2: This movie is hurt, I think, by how influential it's been. Yeah. So you've seen variations on so many of these themes and a lot of it was borrowed uh going into this film. You know, I mean it's the you know, from uh, uh oh I had the I had the, the list up, but uh you know, it came for the thing from another world and forbidden planet and planet of the vampires. You know, you'd seen a lot of this stuff play out before, but uh, so much of it is just ingrained in us. Um, I mean, even the, you know, the, the mouth within a mouth, I mean, the HR gear stuff, which must've been, uh, you know, devastatingly original when people saw it for the first time, you see it now. And it's like, you know, I've seen gifts on Facebook with that sort of thing. Um, but I think I'm able to appreciate other aspects of it more. I mean, again, we talked about this is an adult film for adults, and so to watch it, sort of appreciate the the blue collarness of it compared to uh, a lot of other science fiction films that are you know populated by scientists and and military people that sort of thing. Um,
0: a sterile I, I, future,
2: yes. Um, I was also much I was struck much more this time John we we've mentioned it a few times but the relationship of this film to 2001 I think is much more palpable than to Star Wars mm-hmm. uh, again the, the the long shots of the ship the the ship sort of waking up um I think the the relationship to mother um and even the one of the things that I was really struck by is uh, the arc everything that happens with ash to him being a a mechanical uh being that basically goes insane because of an order that he is given um right down to and i, I really never noticed this before but the one of the last things that ripley says to him before he tries to kill her is open the door ash which sounds huh. so much like open the pod bay doors hal I guess there's a lot of that stuff that that struck me this time that I didn't see before. But it's not as scary as it was when I was a kid and, and certainly not as scary as it was, I'm sure, when it played in movie theaters.
1: I will tell you this, man. Uh, one of the other many, many things that I love about this film is this is the last movie. If there's Okay, here here's where I, I can actually pick a bone with Cameron's film because this movie is a true horror movie. It's a horror movie. And what Cameron's movie did was it took the alien and it turned it into an action figure, you know. And uh, this is the last, the first, last, and only one of these movies in which it's still just a straight up motherfucking horror movie, you know. And uh, from the from Aliens onward, there's no fear or wonder or mystery. Uh, to the Xeno, you know, they, they, they've been, you know they, they're they uh, collectible action figures. They're, uh, you know, a D&D monster with a certain number of hit dice. You know, uh, they're video game characters that we know what they do. When We know what they're all about. Whereas with this one, uh, this is a thing that, that, that goes through stages like an insect. So, uh, but, uh, and, and it has capabilities that that they're reacting to as they discover them in a horrified way. You know, it's like when, you know, at first it's an egg. And then it's a spider that latches onto your face. And then apparently it's a thing in your stomach. And then it's a, a worm that comes out of your chest. And then it turns into a giant, you know, lizard man thing, you know, <laughs> and, and, and with a, a mouth that's inside of its mouth. And uh, who knows what the fuck it's all about, you know. And uh, oh, yeah, by the way, it's almost indestructible. And it bleeds acid. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, like uh, you know, uh, the wonderful thing about uh, Ash's uh, kind of chicanery, you know, I, I, he's got a secret in his back pocket that he's working for the corporation against the crew's, uh, uh, you know, goodwill. Uh, but he's able to hide it by, behind just pure, you know, scientific curiosity, which I believe is, is, is in earnest. You know, and as he's studying the the face hugger, as he's you know trying to pull together his information, he's like, he's actually like, wow, this thing is pretty fucking rad. I can totally see why the corporation wants this.
0: You know, I love that scene at the very end. His last scene, I mean, for the very end for him, he's basically like, yeah, it's a perfect organism, uh, but you have my
2: sympathy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. that's an amazing thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, Mike, I mean, I think you you hit on that. That was actually one of the points I was going to bring up. Is that just from a structural point of view, one of the and and again, I think part of what boxes uh, Cameron and, and subsequent filmmakers in is that the layout of this film is the discovery of the alien. That at it, it, each moment, like the the things that they're building to are. You know, okay. You know, you get the the mystery of the the navigator with his chest burst out. Uh, which, by the way, you would think that somebody would have thought more about. That was one of the things I thought of. Is I was like, didn't anybody think about that a little bit? Or like, you know, they've got this full body scan. They didn't full body scan him after the thing fell off his face. You know, right. so it builds from from that to the egg. You know, well, what's in the egg? We get then we all right. So this is the thing that's inside the egg. And then you have that marvelous scene when they, you know, when they they try to cut it off of him. And uh, watch the acid bleed through the ship. Um, it is this movie moves from one discovery about the alien to another as it develops as a as a species, and that's what's so marvelous about it. And why I mean, why you call it Alien is that it really is taking advantage of something that is truly alien. That everything we learn about it is like, oh my god, and it sort of gets progressively more horrible. Uh, but once you've opened all those doors, when you go to write aliens, I mean, I think that the the queen is kind of the only thing that he's able to really introduce and build on in that mythology, and it's just a bigger alien. So I think that that Cameron probably didn't have much choice uh, beyond going from one alien. Well, what's scarier than one alien? A whole shitload of aliens. Um, well, I
0: definitely want to defend Cameron, but I think we should do that on the next one. Yes, you know, pleasure. let's. I, let's focus on this movie
1: if cinema are are dream are shareable dreams you know a horror movie is the nightmare version thereof and in this situation it's it has the two main hallmarks of a nightmare and the first is you can't escape you know while while you're having it you can't leave and Mm -hmm. you know kind of like uh the thing or uh the shining like there's no just running outside you know it's not like a mansion where you can just like run out to the road and hitch a ride and, and your problem with the ghost is solved. Like there's no going outside with this, uh, with the situation. And uh, the other is the, the amorphousness, you know, it's like, I, and they're, they're constantly reacting to the fact that the thing you know, I, I, they're reacting to it at one stage and then it turns into something else. And then they're reacting to that stage and then it turns into something else. And now they're reacting to that stage. You know, I, I, mean, at first. It it's just like
0: the thing in that way.
1: Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it changes the rules on them throughout the entire movie, and for that reason, that they can never get a solid footing. They're always fighting and struggling and thinking at a disadvantage. You know, they're always you know. I and mean, the other hallmark of horror is the establishment of a certain level of helplessness. You know, and in this case, they're constantly. I mean, even though that they are a crew of capable, intelligent, grown adults with uh, uh enough technological wherewithal that they can rig together tools and weapons as they need them, you know and they outnumber it seven to one, but they're still always you know reacting they're, 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 they get their asses kicked the entire time
0: let 's get you into know? what I think the really most interesting thing is about maybe this whole franchise, and it really is the alien itself and that life cycle that you mentioned. I just find the the combination of things so genius because it's sexual in a really disturbing way. Like, everything that Giger does is sexual in this... You know, maybe it's sexual slash sensual uh, in that, like, it has this texture and this sort of lugubrious wet sticky you know (laughs) metaphorical like uh, veronica cartwright said everything is like a penis or a vagina in his like conception of the of the alien ship and the you know the the apertures that they crawl that they climb into to to get into the ship and you know it the whole thing it's eggs and it's these phallic inserting tubes that the um, that the raping xenomorph jams down your throat. Like, it, it's just slightly different than other Well, you other know, forms I, I see here's
1: the thing is, is Ash describes the alien as the ultimate survivor, you know, and, and what uh, most ensures the survival of a species is reproduction. You know, I I, 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 it's focused on indestructibility and reproduction is the ultimate survivor of any species. And in in, in that sense, you know, it's uh, kind of a, a virus writ large, if that makes sense.
2: Actually, yeah. as a as a brief tangent, I do want to say. So, I, I mentioned that my my father, my stepmother, not into this kind of thing at all. And but he's a they travel a ton, and so they were got back from Switzerland once, and so I said, you know, we went to this really bizarre uh, uh, art show in Switzerland, and we didn't really like it, and blah blah blah. And as they started talking about it, I started going, wait you guys went to an H.R. Giger art show? Of course <laughs> you didn't like it. Like, how did you not know what you were getting into? And of course they had no idea. Um, and I was also insanely jealous of them uh, that they were able to do it. But that's, if you've seen his art in general, it, it, John, you hit the, the nail on the head. I mean, it, it is sexual and, 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 you know, vaginal and phallic and, and, and mechanical and just bizarre. I mean, the the attaching him to a project like this and saying, make something alien uh could not have worked better. That couldn't have been a better uh merging of talent, I think than that, because that creature is, I mean, there's a reason that it exists the way that it does in our, in our pop culture. Um, there's, there's never been anything like it, I think in film.
0: Oh, absolutely. Also the word biomechanical is interesting mm-hmm. because, you know, it, Evokes this juxtaposition that the film presents to us, which is the technology of humanity versus the technology of this species. And there is something of a hybridization between the mechanical and the organic that's just intrinsic to this. Creature, because you know, acid for blood and the indestructibility like very, it, those are artificial, those aren't qualities that we associate with the organic, and yet it, it's squishy and slimy. And you know, there's all kinds of uh, animal and sort of shellfishy aspects to disturbing, you know, shellfish uh, aspects to the design and the whole species what it does is it creates mergers like this is somewhat initiated in this film but the idea that if the alien implants a human being you're going to get an alien that's sort of um, you know uh, uh, the child of humanity and alien and the alien is sort of the child of uh, the organic and the inorganic and all of that works together so
2: well well, if you think about it, too, over the course of the franchise, you see it very much here, but throughout the franchise, the design of the alien incorporates into the production design in a way that yeah. the creature hides in plain sight. I mean, that, that ending yeah. scene when Ripley has escaped to the, the shuttle, you know, I forget, she's putting something into the computer or something, the alien is right there in front of her, but it blends so well into the... The tubes and the ducts and the wires and everything, it fits. That's an
0: amazing point. Yeah. And there's another one. when In Brett's scene, when I had not seen this before, and I don't know if it's just because i it's my Blu-ray or if it was the director's cut, there's a shot of it hanging upside down in the chains where it's right in the middle of the shot. It doesn't move, but you're just... Watching the alien, but it's completely camouflaged up there. That, like, it would be so easy for you not to notice it just as the viewer. Mm-hmm. It's amazing.
1: I, I, and again, I, I, I'm talking about the the brilliance of the production design, but also the fact that I, I, they, uh, you know, it, it goes to the similarities uh, between humanity and the alien. You know, I, we're, we're both two apex species. You know, uh, the humans are are physically weak, but we have tool use, so we have ships, we have weapons, we have all this. You know, we have computers, we have all this good stuff. Whereas, you know, the alien is an apex creature because it's uh you know it in and of itself is you know fashioned by evolution into you know uh, you know the ultimate survivor. And right. uh, yeah, so it's like <laughs>
0: and, yeah, that's a good know, point too. But you don't see them fucking each other over for a percentage.
1: Right, yeah, but I... I, I, I...
2: <laughs> John, you don't know that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You we
1: know, don't no, I, I, you know how much it costs to construct an alien queen's lair.
2: Well, I will say, I will say this: that one of the things this is in terms of the production design, I got so used on Friday the Thirteenth to picking out the things and being like, "Well, that's just silly," and watching this is so different because it's so well done. But the one thing that left out at me was in the in the Brett scene. There's just water dripping all over everywhere, and I found myself thinking if you were on a spaceship, water would be a pretty important commodity. Like I'm not sure you would like – this, is there a leaky pipe up there that somebody should get up there and fix? Well, I, 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 it's interesting that
1: – and that leads directly into something that, that I was thinking about while I was watching this is uh, there's a lot of unexplained – like kind of, I would almost say like uh, haunted house, stagey elements to to the setting, but uh, but they work because and you don't know like, like for instance, I, I we get like a lot of strobe lights uh, when the alien pounces on uh, Veronica Cartwright and Yaphet Kotto when they're loading up the coolant things uh, near the very end. Uh, like there's just like a spotlight. And its silhouette appears in the spotlight. And it's like, where did that spotlight come from? Like, There's a lot of things that like, when you're watching the movie, you're, you're like, where did that come from? Why is there a strobe light? Why is there a spotlight? Why is there water dripping from the chains? And I, I guess you could kind of go, well, maybe you're, I mean, there's a lot of steam on the ship. There's always steam blowing out of pipes and stuff like that. So maybe it's like condensation on the machinery. But you don't really think about it because at, at the end of the day, it's a giant spaceship. You, I, you don't know. Yeah. I, I, you don't know how this fucking thing works. I mean, maybe there's a light uh, that goes off when you open the door and maybe there, it's water dripping off of a thing. And I, you don't know. It's like I, I, you can kind of think about it and chew on it. But I, I ultimately, the explanation doesn't really matter because it just makes this a darker, weirder. It, it, it makes this that much more of an expressionistic film. I mean, they really are in a nightmare where there are weird lights, weird sounds, You know, shit just kind of happens, but none of it feels like a a, a gimme from the filmmakers. It just feels like this is the world that they're in. And, you know, well, I
0: do have a lot of nitpicks about that stuff, and I'll either get to that later or as it comes up in the course of our conversation. But what is airtight and what is most important to be logical is that life cycle of the alien. I mean, like, can you guys think of anything about the alien, the organism itself and how it works that isn't just perfect you
1: know <laughs> well i i mean I, that's kind of the other thing too is uh, i li- like in the same way that those mess hall scenes kind of ground the the human characters um the fact that every step of the aliens life cycle is something that can be found in in nature you know you can find an insect or a spider in an arthropod that does everything that it does you know and it, it's just kind of like this weird mashup of uh, things that you can that they can find in reality somewhere you know and and all of it kind of clicks together in a way because there are elements of like actual evolution so yeah. you know taken to a horrifying degree so it's like you know I, yeah there there are there are parasites that implant an egg in you and the young come out of you while you're still alive and you know, then the thing like gets into a cocoon and it comes out something bigger yeah you know? the virus
0: and that element of it like you mentioned the word virus before like it taps this movie and this creature this life cycle taps into our fears of just sickness and mortality in in you know a general way but also yeah like the idea of of insects you know vermin implanting their eggs in your ear like that weevil urban legend and you know like there's a lot of real uh the fears that people have of their bodies being violated by contagion and infection and and bacteria and things of that nature but then there's also more literal like I think that everyone is afraid of being raped and I think on some level this is like Jaws you know where there's something universal about you know well I don't want to swim anymore because I might have a shark eat me. Well, this isn't as as literal, but like when you watch that thing coil around the guy's, uh, you know, when the face hugger is wrapped around Kane's face, there's just a, almost a, a visceral primordial dread to that it having some, you know, growth on you, some. It, I don't know. It taps into something that feels real, even though we're not actually afraid of this specific xenomorph showing up and attacking us. I, I think that part of the genius of the film is that we we feel like something like this could exist, right?
2: Well, John, yeah. I'll even I'll take that a step further because I was watching this with my wife, who is uh, uh, just over six months pregnant with our second child. And when we get to the, you know, the the sort of famous scene, John Hurt and like, and, you know, you watching it now, you know, the thing is in his stomach. And Emily was like, it's really weird to watch this right now um, because, of course, she's <laughs> watching it while the baby is, is flipping around and kicking in her in her stomach. Um, I mean, I think that that's probably a big part of, of what makes it feel so terrifying is that look like half the population uh, not on this podcast, but half the Earth's population, <laughs> <laughs> you know, will probably go through that experience of having something growing inside of you um, that is, you know, yes, natural and beautiful and wonderful, but also kind of scary to feel something moving inside of you that is not you. Right,
0: right. right. Yeah, and I, I heard, like, one of the producers said that they thought the movie would make more money but women, particularly that have had a child uh were even more leery of this film and did not see it when they heard about that
2: yeah i
1: I, I mean it's definitely a theme that that's picked up and taken throughout the the rest of it. like like other filmmakers that have come into this franchise definitely pick that up uh it, it becomes a running theme, especially with Ellen Ripley, yeah uh meaning what. Yeah, just a, just a whole pregnancy aspect of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, Johnny, you did touch on something that I really liked rewatching this movie again. Um, when the facehugger is on John Hart, and uh, you know, Ash first goes to you know just see if he can take a forcep and like just yank off its leg and see what happens, and uh, its response is to tighten the coil of its tail yeah. around his neck as this extremely subtle. But extraordinarily uh, effective warning yes. to exterior predators. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you can pull me off, sure, but I'm gonna kill. I'm gonna kill this guy. You know, so. so they have
0: acid for blood, but they drool all day long, and you never see that burning through decks. So apparently, their saliva is not acidic.
1: <laughs> I think it's a lubricant. They, they drip. <laughs> it, it, it's a dick that drips lubricants. Every, all over the
0: place, yeah. Uh, literally, it was KY jelly that they used. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So I mean, it's meant to, you know, but yeah, it's 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 like this. Yeah.
0: Oh, now we never see them eat anyone uh, in any of the films, but they have to eat, right? And in this movie, because there is no queen, let's talk about what we think they did with the captain and with Brett. Spoiler, by the way, not everyone survives this film. Uh, they cocoon the guys and we see in this deleted scene that uh, it looks somewhat like what we see of the cocooning in other movies but in this one obviously it's not for the purpose of setting an egg in front of them and having the face hugger jump out and, and impregnate the person. So what do we think is going on there? I mean is that sort of like it's kitchen and it's gonna later go back and eat them or is it actually transforming them into something i've looked into this a little bit and apparently uh they didn't have a really clear decision on oh yeah that's what's going on there but some of the production design and the you know the effects sort of imply that they are turning dallas and brett actually into eggs which would not jibe with what the mythology becomes later. Uh, Vic, do you have any impressions about that, um, or you know, a theory?
2: Well, my thought, and obviously this is with the benefit of hindsight because I didn't know that 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 they didn't know <laughs> what they were doing exactly. Um, what I have, what I assumed, because I also watched the the director's cut, um, is that I mean, the, what we know from Aliens is that these are the the worker bees. Uh, for the, you know, for the purposes of the queen. And so just in terms of your evolutionary instincts, um, what they do, you know, what they're, what that alien, that type of alien's job is, is to go and find hosts and strap them to a wall somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so that's what, that's what it does. Uh, and the you know, even in the absence of a queen, that's sort of what it does because as Mike pointed out, um, these these creatures seem to exist in order to facilitate procreation. Right. Like, it's interesting because you're right. There is no there is no mention of food. We have no idea what they eat. Uh, I mean, Christ, maybe it's photosynthesis. Like I don't. You know what I mean? Like I don't. Yeah. Know.
1: I, I, I mean that's kind of the thing too. Is like I, I mean, it goes from worm level to giant man level uh, without really absorbing any calories that we know of. And it's mm-hmm. like I mean, how does it do that? You know, uh, you know. Ash mentions that its its skin is constantly absorbing and changing, and I, for all we know, it might actually be something like that. You know, I, I, I'm not a biologist. I don't know. Any, I don't know shit about this, but I mean, it is like, I mean, ordinarily, an animal has to eat food in order to grow, and this one just kind of doesn't. It just gets bigger just because. <laughs>
0: yeah, maybe it is. I mean, that's a really interesting thought, that it it, it gets its energy through something else. Um, I think there's something in the movie that would hint at that, and I'm going to have to double back and look into it. But another thing about its M.O. is that in this film – and by the way, I just want to say, as far as things that totally hold up, for me, the design of the actual alien warrior, the adult alien, completely holds up. Absolutely. Yeah, but uh, it puts its mouth within a mouth th- right through Brett's head. And I, I feel like that is sort of something that it tries to do elsewhere in the film. I think that's what it does to Parker, uh, Yafit Yafikoto. So I think that like this movie is sort of suggesting that it grabs you and to kill you or to give you a lobotomy or, or something, it punches this hole right in, in your skull.
1: Yeah, I, uh, see, here's here's kind of the other thing, too. I, I, I mean, in terms of, you know, feeding and whatnot um, and its actual behavior, I there, there is something uh, of a, I mean, it's insect-like in some ways, but in other ways it's kind of like a, a predator, you know, like a tiger or something. Because, speaking exactly of that scene, we have uh, Yafikoto and Veronica Cartwright, they're, uh, they're loading up the coolant, and, uh, uh-oh, there it is. And, uh she is so freaked out that she won't get out of the way, so Yapakogo yeah, can can fry it. So, like, the brave fucking badass that he is, he actually, like, attacks it with his fists. Yeah. And, and, which, of course, is a losing proposition. He gets knocked out with his tail. And what the alien does is it just murders them both and then moves on. Like, it doesn't grab either one of them for food. I mean, it's no. almost like, you know, you... I, 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 and sometimes, like, you know, tigers will just kind of attack you just because... You know, uh, you see zookeepers are always getting eaten by shit, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's what happened. It's like they went into a space where it was and just kind of murdered them. And then it moved on. Now, going into the next scene, Ripley is running along. She's got Jonesy in the box. And she comes around the corner and, oh, shit, it's right there. So she she drops the box with Jonesy in it and she runs away. And we get a really quick cut of the alien looming over the cat in the box and it doesn't eat the cat. Yes. And so, and then uh, Ripley comes back because she wasn't able to stop the self-destruct cycle. She peeks back around the corner. Jonesy is still there, totally unharmed. The alien is gone. And so she runs into the shuttle, gets in the shuttle, takes off. And then only to realize that the alien is gone, quote unquote, because the shuttle was right down that same hallway and apparently, it walked and it walked into the shuttle and crept into a little corner to take a little snooze, you know. So I, I my guess, oh, and the fact that like when she blunders across it, I, I Vic, as you're pointing out, like it completely blends into just like the pipes of the shuttle, you know. She, she has a, she's right on top of the fucking thing, like flipping switches and it sticks a hand out at her, and even, but it doesn't attack her. And in fact, like, it lets her, like, run across the shuttle, jump into the thing, get into her spacesuit. And the whole time, like, she's peeking out the little window in the door, and the alien is still there. It doesn't creep out. Like, it, it knows it's there, that she's there, and does nothing aggressive.
0: My note on that is it was a very languid response to her presence is what I wrote. Well, it's like it's sleepy at first. It's yeah. slow to
1: react. And then I wrote, why? Well, I didn't see that. thing. I think it's sated. From, having, uh, uh, from whatever nutrients it got from Veronica and Yaffet.
0: So yeah. what did it do to uh, Lambert? I think that's one of the big questions of implication and insinuation that the film poses. We know it's extremely nasty. And I will posit that it does not stick its um, mouth within a mouth through her head. That's for sure. Um, but... It it's doing something with its tail there that back to the rape thing that is pretty fricking insinuating of nastiness.
1: Yeah, the, the the tail like slowly curls up uh, across her legs in in a way that uh, on this viewing I found reminiscent of that tree branch in the original Evil yes, Dead. Yes, I
0: thought the same thing. Evil Dead, Evil Dead, the tree rape scene. It evokes the tree rape scene the way it sticks its hook tail between her legs. Now it's keeping it uh, on the low level of the, like it's on the ground, but the trajectory of where that hook is aiming when the cut happens. And then you hear, hear her really disturbing screaming uh, makes you wonder.
1: Yeah. that that, that That's suddenly cuts off, uh, which tells you that I, I, I felt like because I, I, yeah, I mean, her screaming is is real. It echoes throughout the ship as Ripley is running around, and it's horrifying. Yeah. And it like out of nowhere just goes black. So uh, my my guess is that it's doing whatever it's doing, and then she gets uh, a, a shot to the skull. Right. I mean, in past viewings, I've always wondered why is the alien so fucking chill in that shuttle to the degree that like Ripley has to like come out, sit in a chair. Strap herself in and then like blast it with steam.
0: I have no answer to that.
1: My theory is it's sated from, from okay. having just eaten two people.
2: I didn't have a theory, but after what we've just talked about, it, it sounds a little more, uh, uh, let's say post coital than, um, Ooh. Yeah. And, and satiated. I mean, again, you guys have, have opened up this really bizarre and troubling door as to what the alien did with Veronica Cartwright. Uh but then it, it surely does just turn over and go to sleep.
0: Ooh. Wow yeah. Vic. I, I can't believe I didn't think of drawing that line, but uh I think that, that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, so so much so that Ripley has to like actively fuck with it right. and then right. it's like it, it's it's annoyed. It's like Yeah Break, why are you up, bothering
0: up, me? Yeah, why are you? you know, why did you wake me up during yeah. my nap? But, well, you know, well, why did it know to go in the escape shuttle? Um, it, it, was it boning up on certain key technical manuals that, during this time? No, on the-
1: I, 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 I mean, this time around, I was actually, like, paying attention to the geography of that sequence. And I think that uh, there's, like, a T corridor. And if you turn right, you go to the room where um, the coolant is held. And if you turn left... It goes to the shuttle. That's why, like, the alien was right there when Ripley was running to, to, in reaction to it, attacking Yaphet and Veronica. You know, right, right. And then, yeah, it's a
0: small space, actually. Yeah,
1: and then she runs away, and then she runs back. And the why? Why did the alien end up in the shuttle? Because that's the only other place to go besides the coolant room, and had already been there and done its business there. You know, so you know, basically, it kills two people. Wanders down the hallway, startles Ripley, looks at a cat, and then finds uh, a a space to crawl into so it can. I see. Uh, you know, my thought was it was sated like a, a well-fed tiger.
0: Sure, sure. You know? Apparently, you can vent a lot of number of gases inside the life pod. You were you were referencing her doing that. Um, I'm not sure what the utility of of the, having that in the life pod was, but she does flip these various switches and you know spray it with various steams and whatnot there's a lot of steam on this ship and it aggravates the alien who i agree up to that point he was doing his best to avoid her it seems it seems like he just wants to nap and she's making that very difficult but we've got a lot of other stuff to to cover so let's just kind of move on um i think that one of the questions of the film from a logical perspective is like knowing what the company wants and what we see from the later films and what Ash says and, you know, order 937 that we get via mother, the computer on board. They wanted the the crew to bring back a specimen. So. Questions therein and how everything representing the company handles things. I'll start at the end and we'll double back to what's more conversation worthy she asks ripley asks mother to turn the cooling unit back on as you alluded to mike and it does not so now the ship is going to blow up
1: no actually let let, me correct you right there uh there uh in in order to blow up the ship you have to turn off the cooling unit and then go through a self-destruct sequence you know the the, the little things that you screw in and the things that rise up. And then you hit a series of buttons and now the ship is going to blow up because cooling unit is off. And what Ripley does is she runs back. She tries to reverse the self-destruct sequence and she can't because you just can't. And what she does is she tries to co- turn the cooling unit back on as a way to kind of see if that'll work. And Mother's like, no, it doesn't work. You already had self-destruct.
0: You know, okay. Like, well, maybe yeah. maybe if it's like physically impossible to do so, uh, Mother can't do it, but it would behoove the computer to do so if it's still trying to complete its mission yeah, and bring back the alien
1: yeah, it's true it's like I, I mean it's literal thinking on the uh, 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 on mother's case rather than you know it's trying to blow itself up or not blow itself up. you see what I mean?
0: okay well that's fine I, I can buy that but then the other thing is ash seems to want the alien to go on the rampage you know like everything he's doing is not really designed towards just bringing this thing back it's like he wants to seem it see it do its its thing and parker keeps bringing up like something that i found actually it's hilarious he asks five or six times why don't you guys freeze him and we, speaking of Cain, when the organism yeah. is wrapped around his yeah. space, we have to wonder why not. I mean, that would be the safest way to ensure that the organism makes it back to Earth. It's right. Burke's plan in the second one. And if they don't do that and mayhem ensues on the ship, the ship doesn't get back. So, you know, unless the company was convinced that the the alien would wipe everyone out and the ship would just kind of come back as a ghost ship on its own. Mm -hmm. Um, But someone could survive long enough to do what Ripley actually does, which is blow up the ship. So I just had to wonder if, if this was the most logical course of action for Ash and the company.
2: Although no one says this expressly, you don't know anything about the organism. So you don't know how it's going to react to being frozen. So I mm. thought maybe there was some concern for you know not just bringing bringing back a specimen, but trying to bring it back alive. Like, what if it dies on, in temperatures below whatever? But the other thing that I think is relevant to this is that it's clear to me. I think that Ash is malfunctioning by the end of this. Yeah, uh, I do think. I mean, again, that was the the other two thousand and one comparison that really struck me is that for whatever reason, uh, you know, you have that 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 eerie. Droplet of of white fluid down his forehead right before he tries to kill uh, Ripley. He's malfunctioning, and they even—I mean, Lance Henriksen even addresses that uh, in in Aliens—that this model was prone to malfunctioning. I, I mentioned that as a way of, of possibly explaining why Ash was willing to let the creature run rampant. Um, he, he's
0: irrational at exactly. that point. He's not—he's yeah.
2: not, he's not behaving rationally. Um, I wondered. Why does the company conceal Ash's uh, uh, being a robot from the crew? A uh,
1: thing that I picked up this time around was uh, 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 Tom Skerritt even mentions, you know, that he had done like five runs with this other science officer who we never see. And like two weeks before this run, like out of nowhere, hour, they, they put Ash on this crew. So because uh, Ripley is like, who is this guy? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I mean, and after he opens the door for uh and breaks the quarantine, and uh, he's like, I don't know. <laughs> you know so, I, I, because you know, one of the things I've always wondered is, does the company know is this entire thing a setup to get the alien, or is it a happy accident on the alien's part where it's like uh, mother picks up some weird signals, and as mother is like sending signals back to the anarcho station. Like their suits, their suits in corporate offices going, you know, let's pick it up and see what happens, you know, and if the crew dies, fuck them, you know, I I, I don't know if the entire thing is one big trap for them or if it's like the corporation is just kind of like making it up as they go just to see what happens, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, do they not know about this until they get the signal? Uh, or did they get the signal back on Earth and then send this ship out after it? We don't right. know. We don't uh, know any of that.
1: Wait but and, I, and the only I, the only clue is is the fact that it, Ash is introduced at the very last minute, you know, right. so I mean that's one thing that might go. It's
0: very suspicious that he would just be added to this crew. You're right.
2: but they're on their way back, right. which I find sort of interesting. Like if you were gonna send your crew out and have them accidentally pick up the signal, wouldn't they pick it up on the way there?
1: Yeah, I, I maybe they're part of like some other mining thing, or else you know that you know it's, it's kind of like how a trucker will go from New York to Ohio and then you know pick up something else and go from Ohio to Florida, you know. Oh, uh, nice.
2: all right, yeah, that's interesting.
1: And on top of that, it's just like I mean, you know, why waste twenty million tons of ore? You know, you get an alien and you get twenty million tons of ore along the way. It's like it's like yeah. I, I mean, obviously the company doesn't want to blow up you know the Nostromo. They even bring up the cost of it. You know, it's a, it's a Ripley later on in the second movie. But, um, you know. Well, they I,
0: detached from the cargo to land on the planet. I wasn't sure why they didn't detach from the cargo to blow up the ship. Um, I mean, I guess Ripley just didn't realize some bureaucrats would end up busting her ass over that decades later.
1: Oh, because that, that landing craft gets damaged in the course of it. I remember they, they actually have to sit on the uh, on the planet for about 25 hours before uh before they can go back to the cargo
0: oh sure but i mean like when the decision comes to blow up the the ship i assume that that meant that was the the landing craft i mean that's the that's the tug that's pulling the boat you know in this boat scenario so they could just leave the cargo out in space i mean somebody else could go back and get it if she gave a fuck
1: yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> if she gave a fuck about the horse. <laughs> war is the least of anybody's concerns in this entire scenario. But uh uh going back to Ash, I, I mean uh Ash's that entire sequence is fucking phenomenal. I mean, not only is it the the slow ramp up of the stakes in that scene, because at first I, I mean, it's funny that he's uh R- Ripley goes in, uh and she Unfortunately, she unwisely tells Ash what she's gonna do. She's like, I you know, I've got access to mother, I'm gonna get to the bottom of this. And Ash is like, Oh yeah? You know, so uh she goes in, she gets the order, she sits back and she's like, Oh fuck. And as she sits back, like Ash is right there. And how he got into a room without her noticing, I don't know, but it's it's a nice little villain horror movie moment, you know. It is. And then um at first he's just being a dick, you know, with the shutting of doors. And we've seen with you know one of the cool things about the earlier scenes with Harry Dean Stanton and Yafikoto is uh characters shutting doors on each other or starting steam you know uh you know so it's I like,
0: believe Ripley does it to Dallas actually.
1: Yeah yeah exactly yeah. so it's like I, it's it's something that they do to each other you know so when if when he first shuts a door on her you know we're not thinking uh-oh it's just like all right well I mean that's just how these guys interact on the ship but then when he keeps doing it and she's start, and you could, and to Sigourney Weaver's, you know, yeah, I, and she's she acts this scene fabulously because I can see like she's starting to get scared, but she's also pissed at the same time. But it's going up by degrees, and then like when the milk starts dripping down his face, you're just like, what the fuck? And that's one of the most awesome things about this movie is it constantly gives you what the fuck moments. You don't know what's going on, but they come out in, like, really naturalistic ways. Like, he's finally losing his shit, you know? And so he throws her around, and she's knocked out because it's a movie, and if you throw someone around, then they fall unconscious for a couple minutes. And then what happens is you'll notice that there's – you know, I've always wondered, you know, the the magazine attempted kill – was like one of those weird '70s things that I've always loved, kind of like how Lois Lane like, dies by being drowned in gravel and Donner's Superman. You know, They, they, they were great of, of thinking of like these bizarre demises. And so he's going to kill her by suffocating her by, by rolling up a magazine and stuffing it down her throat. And if you'll notice, something that I didn't pick up on before, it's out of Dallas's porn collection.
0: Dallas' porn collection. Because,
1: I, noticed, I did notice the pornography up on the wall, but I yeah. didn't know. Uh, did, how do you know how it's Dallas's? Because, gentlemen, because Dallas up until now is the only character who has access to Mother. Like, you actually can't go into that room unless you're the captain. See what I mean? And the scene takes place directly outside of Mother's lair. You know, so what other character is just randomly hanging around that section of the ship? You know I'll, this is why people want to listen to their yeah, show, yeah, yeah. to so, get into Dallas's porn collection yeah, <laughs> I, 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 Dallas uh, you know he's yeah I, 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 he's got like uh, nudie photos taped up on the wall and there's a pile of magazines. And you know, I I don't think that he's got you know I, I one I mean, we don't get a shot of the magazine itself. Now but, I'm not
0: I'm not well, clear. Hang on a second. Yeah. Um, I think you do kind of see the magazine. It does look like it's one of those types of magazines. Yeah. But there could be a door between mothers. Uh, that little room where she talks to mother. I'm pretty sure that's a little room, and it has a door. But on the other side of that door, we don't know that that is sacrosanct uh, territory, I, I would assume that that was like Brett's shit myself.
1: Maybe. I, I, I'm from their characters, yes. But I, I, unless you know, we, we see that they're like in a bunkhead, you know, then it's like, I mean, basically like that is the section of the ship in which Dallas spends the most time. So, I mean, thereby is Dallas's foreign collection.
2: Two thoughts I don't want to miss. Number one, John, I had no idea you were such a prude that you had to refer to it as one of those types of magazines. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's it's a it's a porn. I mean it's a it's a pornographic It, it offended thing. my tender you can, sensibilities. You can say that. We we've, we've cursed on here already. Um we we've you know opined at length on the the uh, breasts of various characters in Friday the 13th. Um but uh there's also uh, something that I hadn't really considered uh until we get into these discussions of the the various sexual aspects of this movie
1: What they the yeah He's going to jam a porn
2: magazine gonna, down Ripley's he's gonna throat. He's going to roll up a porn magazine into, you know, essentially a giant phallus and then try and suffocate her with it. He's uh, going to
0: deep throat her to death.
2: To
1: well, death. And, yeah. and, and, and weirdly enough, in, in, in a bizarre you know, juxtaposition with the alien itself, you know, it shoves a thing down your throat Ooh, and point. then you die. You know,
0: somebody said on one of the commentaries or you know special features that they thought that that was as close as that scene at least. As close as Ash comes to being sexual, like is that as a robot? Is is he even capable of any of that? And that sort of represents the apex of that to them.
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I love that, I, I, and, and especially when Yafikoto comes in and, and fights him, and like he's he's obviously like really strong because I mean, again, like he he, re, he, he doesn't like grab him by the neck or the eyes or something like, like he just puts his his hand on Yafit's pectoral muscle. And just yeah. squeezes really hard, and he's so strong that like that's uh, like you know he starts. Parker sque-
0: reacts big to that. Yeah,
1: ah! you know, and, and it's like he it, like we already know that he's got milk coming down his face. He's super strong. He's acting in this weird way, and then when he bashes his head off with um with the fire extinguisher, I mean, dude, you're just in such a weird nightmare of a scenario. Yeah where it's like anything can happen and even like the interior of it. I love the fact that the interior of Ash's body isn't like circuits and chips. It's like... Oh, yeah,
0: I mean, the use of organic stuff in the FX is is huge in this film and, and part of its brilliance is that like they use pasta and fish parts and and organs, tripe and, you know, various like... And they've used real blood in certain parts. Like they really used... Uh, amazingly tangible, tactile, gross things to make these effects work.
1: Yeah, it's like... Caviar. They use yeah, caviar. He's, fill, he's filled with white tubes with milk and there's like little Marbles. bulbous things going on. I mean, it does look organic but just in an alien manner just like the alien. So it's like... Why does he
0: malfunction, though? I mean, I think that's the real question. Like, uh, he doesn't see any action up to that point. He's not banged around or hit in right. the head or something. It just kind of happens. I'm yeah, not sure. I, I will
1: say I, I, I had two quibbles about this movie. Uh, I, I in, in 99% across the board, I love the movie even more, having watched it again. But I had two things going in. I'll save the other one for a little bit later. But one of them was there is no triggering moment for him to go nuts. I mean, even in the case, uh, we can say that, you know, there, there are theories to be had. Whereas in Ash's case, like he's actually just a machine who was following an order. And I, I guess the, like the most that we can get is, you know, uh, Bishop's explanation that, you know, he's just a twitchy model. You know, and but it's a little convenient. It's a little like, nah, we needed him to like fall in a thing or yeah, you know, something.
2: Two thousand and one. Part of why it is such a a magnificent seminal film, not just a science fiction film, but a film, is that Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke put so much time and and thought, I think, into uh, how psychology. And when you watch that film, you know, repeatedly, you find all these little. Hints and 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 moments and things that are worked into the film so that you can at least formulate an idea in your head of why Hal essentially goes goes crazy at the end, uh, and that's why again you I think you you sacrifice maybe you don't but the decision to make uh, uh, Ashes reveal as a robot a surprise. Um, I think limits you a little bit in in terms of, of what you're able to do with the script in hinting about why these things eventually happen. Uh, I agree it's not it's not very well. I mean, I think it's he's a machine and the machine is malfunctioning. I mean, I agree that that's it's not a terribly satisfying answer. You do get the hints of like him letting letting them on the ship, and you have that moment when uh, Sigourney Weaver says, you know, when they're off the ship, I'm the ranking officer, and he says something like, "Oh, I must have forgotten."
1: Um yeah, but, but but he can quote other aspects of the rule book chapter and verse. Like, yeah. like when like when you know the, the engineers are bitching about their pay and it's like, well actually, you know, Yeah, it's super we, suspicious when yeah. he says that we don't like, yeah, it, it it's a great it's an extremely well written and well acted ruse because like I mean, everything that he does it, it kinda is viable. You know, um, you know, by they're my crewmates. They're in danger. Viable if you assume that he's a flawed human being with feelings. You know, and he's using the you know an emotional uh, approach superficially in order to sell you know his very you know you know evil scheme. You know, I mean, it's like I, I you know they're my friends. I want to let them on. They're in trouble. They could have died. You know, and that's why Ripley is like, nah, okay, I'm pissed. By the way,
0: to that point, I think that uh, her, her, her proposal was to leave them in the locker room for a prescribed, not the locker room, in the airlock for a prescribed period of time, and you know, basically run some scans or something like she wasn't actually just going to leave them outside the ship until they died. Right. Right. I mean, yeah,
1: I, 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 you know, but you know, I, and according to the rule book, you know, they have to stay out off the ship for hours and, and he lets them on anyways. And when she confronts him about it, He's like, yeah, but, you know, they're my crewmates and my friends. And, like, you know, so, like, it makes sense on an emotional level. And that's why, you know, she's like, eh, okay.
0: Well, and Veronica Cartwright loses her shit on Ripley for doing that that to them.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. Such a great moment. And you look at it now, and all I can think is, Ripley could have just beat the shit out of her if she
1: wanted
2: to. It's interesting though that
1: um, much later after Dallas has been taken um, yeah, uh, and Ripley is just trying to figure out what the fuck to do and uh, she turns to Ash and she's like, have you figured out anything? And he's like, I'm still collating. <laughs> I love that. She starts laughing and she's like you're, what's you're collating, and you know, let—that's the first true beat in which you can go. Wait a minute, dude! Like, like he's—he's he's not imagined enough to come up with better lies anymore. You know, it, I, I think that he's already starting to kind of come across. He's starting to get afraid a little bit. It is, like, a,
2: it is a great performance by Ian Holm. I mean, again, I—the yeah. I, casting of this movie has so much to do with why it works. Oh yeah. I mean, he gives off that—that that weird calm. Uh, uh, vibe and, and yeah there's those lines there's so many lines watching it uh, you know if you've seen it a couple of times you watch it so many lines just have this weird kind of double meaning and again that scene you know uh, oh I forgot and you're like no, no you didn't like you're I, I don't know It's it, all of it is in it, a lot of it is in the performance uh, I feel like he does as much as he can to make that that twist of him you know kind of going insane and trying to kill them he does as much as he can to make it work, but the script—the script is just missing it. There's just, you know, there's there's two or three lines somewhere in there that needed to happen. And like you said, yeah, he gets bonked in the head, or, uh, you know, I don't know, something happened.
1: Shocked by Yeah, I, the only thing that I can think of that I can wonder is uh, the commonality between Hell and Ash is that they are both artificial intelligences that are presented with the fantastic. And uh with something that is not only outside of their immediate purview, but out of the purview of the species, humanity, that created them in the first place. And whereas uh, humans will go insane, obviously, but, you know, humans also have uh, a certain level of imagination that we can start going, okay, this is weird, but let's take a look at it. Whereas in both cases, the machine just kind of goes off the rails.
0: Yeah, their thinking is much more rigid. You know, we're more, by nature, malleable and adaptable. Uh, that's a really good point. How, could, how would you guys think this movie would be different if Veronica Cartwright was Ripley? It's
1: <laughs> <Yeah, that's> like <laughs> lots of screaming and crying all the
0: way <laughs> Well, she was originally uh, reading for Ripley and showed up in London to shoot the movie thinking that she was Ripley. Huh. And she didn't know she was Lambert until she showed up for costume fitting and they gave her something and it said lambert on the nameplate or something they're like here's your lambert costume she's like wait i'm not playing lambert i'm ripley and then she calls her agent and her agent says you're ripley and like it something kind of broke down in the communication there now obviously it's kind of ridiculous to think about um but that was actually you know something that could have happened, and she said that she didn't like the fact that the character she's she's reading the script, and she's like, "Oh, she's always crying. What is this?" Yeah, she yeah. didn't even want to do it, and apparently they said. Well, you're, you're the representation of the audience here. You reflect their fear. And, and that's why she's like, oh, well, you know, I'm here. I'll do it. But she didn't expect to play that type of character. So I, we've all seen her in things. I, I like her in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, sure. you know. But it is kind of hard to imagine what this movie would have looked like with her in that yeah. part.
1: You know, I I, I think that, I mean, there there is a value to her character and standing in. It's like you know this is a scary scenario. We have at least one character who's going to react like that, and like it, it's it's not I mean, it doesn't come out of nowhere. I, I it's like uh you know for instance when they go down to the planet and, and, and even though like she reacts big to stuff like she's never un unincluded in in the jobs that need doing. It's like when they go down to the plan in the first place. And she's, uh, talking about how she can't see anything. And like, someone's like, quit your griping. And in like this kind of like chirpy, funny way. She's like, I like griping. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's almost like that. That's, that's such an ingrained part of herself that she actually owns it. You know? Mm-hmm. Um,
2: I like writing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think she does a great job. She actually is one of the only, if not the only person to win an acting award for this film. She won a Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actress, for what it's worth. Um, But I think if if somehow they had pulled that off, like, and, and actually cast Sigourney as Lambert, it would have been really interesting to have, you know the The reversal of like the bigger, more physical, tough seeming one is actually the the chicken, and the one that's like really got this fortitude and mental toughness and integrity is is the little sort of you know less conventionally attractive one. It, it would have been interesting.
2: Yeah, the, yeah, huh, huh. I, I do want to yeah. I want to float this other alternative universe by you because I'd heard this and now, but the, I have looked it up in order to confirm it. Um. Uh, they initially offered the part of Ellen Ripley to Meryl Streep. Wow. That makes sense. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I obviously think she would have pulled it off. Yeah, well, certainly.
1: Yeah. I, I, I think, the, yeah, but the, the, the con to that is you immediately go, oh, she's the star, she's going to survive. Yeah. yeah right. Whereas in this movie, you don't know. Anybody, That's it's a like good point. They, they kill Tom Skerritt. Yeah, you know, it's like I. I it's like uh, the the film I, is
0: very much uh, designed to present a equally weighted ensemble, and you really don't know who is going to make it out, and that is a tremendous strength to to give a horror film because yeah, I think that predictive, yeah, predict, making there's a, it predictable in that way really diminishes suspense.
1: Exactly. I and mean, it's like, I mean, if you're Amelia, like, here is hero woman, famous actress. It's like, okay, yeah, 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 whatever. But, I mean, in this case, it's like every one of those characters has a set of pro and cons as to why they could survive or not. And, uh, you know, Veronica Cartwright is perhaps the least because she's so, emot- you know, uh, and she even dies pretty much because when the alien, you know, jumps at her, you know, she freezes up. And she won't get out of the way, so yeah, Fakoto can, can light it up. You know what I mean? Um, she... I kind of was... bought that. Like that, That's a
0: beat that is hard to pull off, that someone's too terrified to move out of the way of a flamethrower so that someone can save you. Um, but like, you kind of understand, both because of the setup with the character and the circumstances, why she would be frozen. There's a similar beat on The Walking Dead this last week that I won't really talk about, but um, they didn't pull it off, in my opinion.
1: Right, yeah. It's I mean... I, I, I... You know, you can, as an audience member, you can be like, wait, you dummy, get out of the way. But it's like, you know, if you're an actual person in that scenario where an eight-foot-tall monster that eats everybody that it meets, shows up, and it's looming right in your fucking face, then, yeah, I, I, if you take a second to think about it, it's like, yeah,
2: it's pretty scary. I get it. Well, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, think about, the. to me, the the best executed example of a moment like that is Saving Private Ryan with Jeremy Davies. Right. When he's frozen on the stairs and can't go in, even though uh, uh, Adam Goldberg is getting is you know getting stabbed in the chest, um, mm-hmm. I mean that that is a human reaction that you've seen certainly dramatized lots of times with different degrees of success. But I do think it's something that you can you can understand being that terrified.
1: Yeah, it's really easy to sit there with your popcorn in one hand and your dick in the other and go What the fuck? Get away! The... And it's like, no, I didn't think about it. You know, it's like. Quick uh,
0: anecdote that I wanted to work in at some point. Uh, Parker, uh, Yafakota, was more used to improvising uh, than the stage actor, the young rookie stage actor Sigourney Weaver. And apparently they didn't uh, do any rehearsals. Or if they did rehearsals, they just shot them. So everything the camera is running... And so apparently there's all of these versions of the scene where uh, Dallas is dead and she says, you know, I'm the captain, whatever, and this is what we're going to do. And he wasn't buying her. So like when he when she would say that, he would be like just, you know, off the top of his head. Well, I'm 250 pounds of black man and you're not doing anything unless I tell you, you will or something like that. (laughs) Right. right, right, I'm in charge now. And then she would kind of, you know, they do another take and and she'd get another crack at it. And finally, she's so pissed and so defiant. And she's just like, I'm the captain now. And he's like,
1: well, okay, Yeah. (laughs) That's great. That's amazing. That's wonderful. Um, Yeah. yeah, uh, uh, Let's now go into my second quibble about this movie. And that is Jonesy the motherfucking cat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And Ripley's uh, Ripley has an Achilles heel and her Achilles heel is this dumb fucking cat. Jesus. Uh, I would say Harry and, and, and it manifests itself in two major beats. And the first one is when they're looking for the alien when it's still in worm mode and it's her Harry didn't send the Africato, All right. And, uh, they got the net and, uh, they've got the little, uh, you know, the, the, the motion tracker that they've rigged up. And, uh, which I love too. It's like they, they, if they need something on the fly, you know, they just kind of build it. And that's, so they're walking around. Uh, there's movement coming out of a locker. And, uh, we get a big jump scare when they throw open a locker and, oh no, it's actually the cat instead of, uh, the alien. How did
0: the cat get in the locker and close the door behind Yeah,
1: them? exactly. It's like, I, I, mean, I, I mean, who knows? Cats are crazy. They can do anything. But, um uh, I, I, I also love the fact that, like, this cat hasn't been established yet. At all. Like, I mean, we don't see her, like, you know, playing with it or stroking it. It's not like hanging around the mess hall. It's like the, it's the first introduction of this creature on the ship whatsoever. But apparently she has a deep emotional attachment to this thing because she splits the party. Uh, she tells Sand to go chase the cat down while she and Yapakota go and keep looking for the alien. And that's how he gets killed. Because he's left to his own devices, he's looking for the cat. And the cat is like, you know, hissing. And I I love the shot in which he gets taken and we cut to the cat's reaction. It's just the cat just like blankly staring at this dude gets like murdered by an alien. By (laughs) the way,
0: to be fair, it's not at that point in the film, it's not necessarily emotional attachment. They're worried that the cat will trigger the motion sensor. That's stated Uh, as the reason they're looking for the cat at that point. But then later we see more indication of emotional connection with the cat and it, it's even funnier to me the second time that you're about to talk about when Ripley could be helping uh, Lambert and Parker. Yeah. She's not actually doing anything; like she's done getting the shuttle ready. But instead, she's looking for the cat at that point.
1: Yes, yes. and going into that beat, she's like, "I, I, I, I they're they in like fire drill mode." Whereas, like, "I, you, you guys go get some coolant. I will meet you back here in seven minutes." You know, which is a really specific like military precision like we have a job to do period of time. You know, not five, not ten, not thirty minutes, seven minutes. Speaking w- of
0: cats, mine are hungry and they're really making this podcast difficult, but please yeah. continue.
1: <laughs> and she spends five of those minutes looking for the goddamn cat. And then even when uh she hears her crewmates screaming in uh in terror because the alien is pouncing on them, you know, she lugs the goddamn cat in in that box. As she runs to go help them. And I, for all we know, if she had just left Jonesy there and just had the flamethrower, she could have caught up with them. She could have helped them. But no, she had to drag the fucking cat around. And then... It makes you wonder if, like, the whole getting the shuttle thing was just a
0: ruse. She's like,
1: um, yeah, I need to go get the shuttle ready. Yeah, and she's yeah. like, Jones, Jones, where are you? Yeah, I would be <laughs> like if Yapakoto was was like, yeah, I have to go pick up some coolant," And then, like, he runs off to get Dallas's porn collection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <You know? laughs> and the, the cherry on top is that it seems like kind of a one-sided relationship because when she actually does pick him up in the end he's growly about it like he he doesn't act like he likes her very much
1: Right. well I I, I I am to the surprise you know a one-sided relationship with the cat is pretty much powerful course in terms of these <laughs> two species interactions but it's like I, I but i and that's the thing is like she goes completely like uh, she, i she i mean there's you know Fire drills and the ship is going to blow up and she's lugging this stupid box around I I was pleased when the alien shows up around the corner that she drops Jonesy and runs away you know at least she does that much you know and I love the fact that the alien looms over and looks at the cat and the cat looks at the alien and then the alien just wanders off
0: in the director's cut the alien actually knocks the box aside like he actually just swats it out of
1: the way Oh, okay. Oh, that, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, so yeah, I mean, uh, but then it's like, and I, I, she goes completely out of her way to like lug the cat onto the onto the the shuttle, and um, you know, we finally end with her speaking into the captain's log, and stroking the cat. But you know, I can see, dude, man, I, I maybe it's just me, but if it was like my ass or the cat, then I would just get home and go to the pet store you know i mean
2: fuck that stupid fucking Well, this is you know I, again i was i was watching this with my wife who was like why the fuck does she have a cat like who brings a cat on a you know a multi month space journey um and so the, and i my response to her was that look if you're going to make a you know a haunted house movie in space like i guess you have to drag a couple of haunted house clichés with you uh, like the you know I mean, the the jump scare where it turns out to be a cat. I mean think think about Friday the 13th was it is it part 2 where they they hurl the cat? Uh, I think it's every Friday the 13th. Every Friday the 13th movie. Yeah. I mean how many times do you just see cats like jumping out as a as a fake jump scare? Um, yeah. I mean it's it, it is one of the uh I will say the lower class decisions in this movie but they and
0: run it, with it in, in the course of the franchise because yeah, i love yeah. that she has established that this she has this close relationship with the cat which may actually be her closest relationship on this ship she makes him a priority and then like in the second film it really confirms or cements that that you know jones is her buddy and you know the last line spoken in this movie is come on kid to jones mm mm-hmm. Uh, one other thing about the end, she keeps repeating, you are my lucky star over and over. Some kind of mantra. I didn't exactly understand what brought that to mind for her. Did you guys pick up on
1: that? Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, that's just like a song that she's singing to herself to, to calm her nerves. It's like, I, I think that when you're really fucking scared, you start talking to yourself. You know, uh, I, I just, yeah. just and it's like, you know, I, I remember one time I was I was riding my... My motorcycle back from, uh, you know, someplace and like out of nowhere, it was like windy and rainy, like completely out of nowhere. And like, you know, I, I mean, it turned and I was was on the 110 or something like that. And like the bike is going all over the place. I'm getting blown and like, you're like, row, row, row your boat gently down. It was like, uh, I, 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 it it was like, you know, it turned what should have been just a, a relaxing drive home into. You know, suddenly it's it's like this do or die scenario. You know, and it's like you know, it's it's uh, you know, to my mind. So you started singing something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was singing, uh, uh, you know, like a, a little Anthrax tune to myself. You know, just to, just to externalize it. But it's it's all. I, I think that the whole Lucky Star thing, it's it's like that or like oh fuck, oh
2: fuck, oh fuck, oh sure. it fuck. It is fuck. You know. Incidentally, it is, uh, I believe, a reference to uh, uh, one of the musical numbers from Singing in the Rain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really? So, yeah. That's I, if if I, you I, look it up, there is "You Are My Lucky Star" is one of is uh, Debbie Reynolds. Uh, well,
1: if she came off of Broadway originally, then I, I, the direction in that scene may have been, you know, you're really scared, start t- singing or talking to yourself, and she mm-hmm. would reach out to uh, a musical number,
2: you know. Well, so- also, I mean, incidentally, even you know, however long into the future. Uh, there are still DVDs of Singing in the Rain floating around, and, <laughs> Dallas-
0: <laughs> and probably you know. DVDs of A Clockwork Orange as well. Yeah, so but I, yes. I, I
2: mean,
1: I also like the fact that uh, this movie fits squarely in the pantheon of like earlier sci-fi films in which, like, no one, I I, 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 even when there's visions of the future, it's basically like just big versions of stuff that's on hand, you know, where it's like, uh, uh we have this dot matrix. Uh, monitor, you know, <laughs> as, as, you know as, as mother's communication. Um, although I do like that mother is smart enough to respond to very colloquial questions. You know, it's yeah. like, you know, like Dallas will type in stuff like, you know, do I have a chance? And, you know, mother we'll get an answer. Yeah. I, I, I and she's like a, a proto version of Siri. You know, you, you can ask her like <laughs> really, you know, conversational type things and she'll understand what you're trying to get at, you know, um, and There's it,
0: three more things that I want to hit. I think we're we're running out of time, so go ahead and say what you're going to say. But uh, I do have three more points before I even say like final thoughts.
1: Right. I uh, I had one last thing that really kind of j- stuck out with me is the fact that uh, kind of per that mother doesn't speak until the very end. Uh, she is uh, represented, I, I, and the characters keep re- you know referring to her. Yeah, uh, and, but I mean, she's just uh, these dot matrix, you know, words on on a green screen. This really kind of low tech IO situation. Until so when the ship is about to blow up, and then suddenly we get her voice, and it's, I, I, it's not like she's cognizant. She's not like Ripley. What are you doing? You know, it's not like a hell situation. I mean, it sounds like. Um, you know, just like a, a stock recording scenario.
0: Yeah, that's that was my assumption on that. So.
1: Yeah, but, I, I, but but Ripley, you know, starts screaming at her as if she can respond. You know, sure. uh, and you know, I, I kept thinking it's like we, you know, in horror, what you want to do is you want to weaken characters as much as possible, and uh, by taking away their abilities, their their intelligence, their you know, la la la. And one really strong way that you weaken characters. And horror is to make them younger, to infantilize them. You know, uh, that's why so much of horror is about you know, teenagers getting you know, murdered. Uh, or else, if it's about something that's about adults, you, make, you, you infantilize them. You know? uh, and in this case, we have Ripley. She becomes almost really like a little girl calling up for her mommy. You know, for help uh, at the very end, and I, she's still capable and trying to save her own ass. But there is an aspect of you know, father, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, she calls her a bitch.
2: Yeah, I was going to say more that, of a teenager when she when yeah. she calls her a bitch. But yeah, it's a, it's actually a really interesting point, Mike.
0: Yeah, it is. I, I hadn't thought of that, but it it, it definitely. In, increases her vulnerability in And kind of
1: for that, that. I, I think that, you know, that, that that desire to make this obviously very tough and capable character, uh, let's make her, uh, put her in weaker and more vulnerable situations is, you know, we, we make her younger in uh, her reaction to mother. And also when she gets into the shuttle, like she yanks off her clothes. You know, now she's like, she's in her underwear, you know, uh, when the- Very younger, vulnerable. She, yeah, ex, extreme. So it's like, you know, when, even when she's safe, you know, then we give her an uh, an excuse to get very vulnerable, and uh, yeah, and then she's you know. kind of
0: returning to a primal state or a you know a, a a state of birth in a sense. You know, because in the final shot of the film, it's there's a baby in the womb motif to the final image, which is her face with sort of a line over it, uh, which is sort of the canopy of this cryo chamber but it kind of looks like a baby in the womb uh yeah. like a sonogram
1: an incubator it's like you know, I and mean, the shot is reminiscent of the star child at the end of 2001 but it's like yeah but you know it's like i, I mean you know she, we, we finally make this in the final beats we make the character vulnerable by having her relax she yanks off her clothes i mean she's obviously getting ready for the tri- cryo chamber I mean, all of it is very sold, but uh, I will say that that lean over the 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 monitor thing, whatever that she's working on, is one of the most wonderful things in all of cinematic history. Absolutely, I, I, I would say that. I, I mean, for my young mind, it was probably one of the most sensual things I'd ever seen, and still to this day, it is a beat where I'm just like, "Damn, it's really fucking <laughs> sexy." Is this and, uh, is her back turned? Her back is turned. You know, she's down to her panties and like a and like a, a pullover t shirt, and that's it. And uh I mean, she's just I mean, she's just working. She's getting ready for bed. I mean, it's, and I think that's actually what makes it that that much more sexual. You know, the the fact that like she's not posing for us on purpose, if that makes sense. You know, uh I and mean, it's 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 wonderful. She she is fucking gorgeous in that beat.
0: Uh, I definitely had a similar childhood response to it. I yeah, think, uh, you know, a thousand hours of pornography later, um, it's not quite as powerful to me.
1: I mean, for young lads such as ourselves at that period of time, it's like I mean, that's like the, the shot that launched. You know, a thousand masturbation sessions
0: across... <laughs> You're going to say a thousand wads or something? Yeah! A... <laughs> <laughs> so back to something way earlier that I probably should have brought up when I was discussing the alien and its MO. Um, but it just it kind of amuses me, and I don't really get it. When uh, Dallas gets it, and he's in the air shaft, and the alien suddenly appears... And he just goes, I wish this was a video podcast, because he just sort of flings out his hands, the alien does, and is like, ta-da! Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then it cuts. And it doesn't look like he's really, you know, grabbing him or anything. It It's more like he's just, like, throwing his fingers open, like, to say,
1: guess who? <laughs> gotcha! <Yeah. laughs> <It's> like... <laughs>
0: I don't really know what to make of it, but it, it kind of it, it makes me laugh rather than is scary at this point. So I'm not I'm not really sure that I wouldn't change that if I had my druthers.
1: Yeah, I, I, there there are moments of slight artificiality to this film, uh, you know, and that's a really good example. It's like, I mean, if it were being purely naturalistic, then the alien would pounce at him, you know, from behind like like like, like a tiger or a spider, you know. But we do get this beat because you know it's a movie. And we we want to have like that you know that that momentary shock of the creature like you know looming out of the shadows into the light and boom it's gone, and then we cut to this is all we uh, this is all we found was his gun,
0: yeah, yeah, as we throw this uh back to you for final thoughts, uh I will preface that with a comment, and you can either you know run with this or just get into uh your concluding arguments, gentlemen uh Ridley Scott said that. This film, to him, what he was himself, like obviously all these other sci-fi films influenced other people, but he was not a sci-fi guy. Actually, a lot of key figures involved in this film were not, but the film that he drew on for inspiration, I would not have expected this, and I still don't 100% see it, but gentlemen, the film that he used was The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and he's said this multiple times. Interesting, huh?
1: I, mean, I I would say it makes complete sense if you start thinking about the um
2: this the the way that the space is used and the way that sound is used.
0: Yeah, good point.
2: I thought you were going to say "Singing in the Rain," so I'm actually pleasantly surprised that it was uh, uh, "Texas Chainsaw Massacre."
0: <laughs> I could well, see the hitchhiker singing that, That's and, and,
2: really and also you know just the grungy realityness
1: of it. Right. You know, I, I, I mean, it's a movie. It's a movie in which you know there are definitely art. Artistic and artificial elements uh are are kind of the box, but within we have characters who are real human beings and they're sweating and they're screaming you know uh it's, it's they're
0: bending it's, over instrument panels
1: yeah, you know
0: eating spaghetti
2: <laughs> and it does it does have that i mean we've talked about the nightmare quality to this. Uh, the 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 sort of deeper you get into the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, just the the bones everywhere and the you know, I mean, the the dinner scene where things just seem sort of warped and foreign and bizarre. Um, I can I can see that connection that this is a this is also a nightmarish world, except that instead of of you know bones hanging from lamps and and you know grandpa and his weird mask in the wheelchair it's tubes and pipes and that sort of thing and you know in home with his head hanging off um, giger
0: did use real bones in his his designs in this film for what it's worth
2: can you get a sag card if giger puts one of your bones in in a movie <laughs> <laughs> i think oh, it was uh, cattle bones but cattle, uh, oh all right yeah well cows aren't eligible for the Screen Actors Guild. So, I'll have to
0: see. check the bylaws.
2: Yeah. One of the things that I, I, I knew there wasn't going to be a good way to work in, but that I do think is interesting, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, is the tagline, In Space No One Can Hear You Scream, the most famous movie tagline ever? Uh, and have I mean, how many times have you heard that parodied? Um, right. I don't know. I, it was just That was one of the interesting things that I thought about in, in revisiting this, just in terms of the marketing and how iconic the movie is, and that's one of the things that really stands out is in space, no one can hear you scream. That's Um, brilliant. Both self-evident and kind of silly because, you know, they're in the spaceship where we hear lots of screaming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) And if you try to scream in a vacuum, it's probably not going to make any noise. Uh, Well, I guess that is sort of um, what they're getting at, but...
2: Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it just... Again, that that notion that this movie is um, so well done has been seen so many times has been so influential that not only is the you know the xenomorph and the the character of Ellen Ripley uh, incidentally actually you want to talk about how uh, profound uh, this movie has been to me in my life I desperately if we were going to have a daughter for our second child we're actually having a son but if we had a daughter my wife and i had been arguing for six months over whether or not we could name her ripley um and it is actually my brother has a, a, a daughter whose middle name is ripley for precisely that reason uh um, wow. well so it was it,
0: uh it's been added to the library of congress in 2002 it's been preserved in the national film registry it's usually in the top seven lists of any sci-fi, you know, uh, best of all time, American film Institute, you know, that type of institution. So the respect it's, is certainly there.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, it's a movie so famous that it's tagline is famous. Uh, that's, that's, yeah. that's pretty, that's pretty big. This is a, this is a big and, and, uh, important film. I think not just in, in science fiction and in horror, which is, which is difficult to create, craft a film that ranks so high in more than one genre, I think. Um, but just in the history of film in general, it's, an, it's incredible. It's an incredible movie.
0: Mike?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, to, to state that it's an influential movie is, you know, the epitome of obviousness. But, you know, uh, especially because, I, you know, I've read 100,000 screenplays about a crew and they come out of cryogenetics. You know, it's like the, the cryo chamber concept itself. Is one of the most lifted things ever in in sci fi cinema. You know, I, I've read millions of screenplays, and like the minute you know, it's like here is a ship, and like the minute that we introduce a crew as coming out of a croucher, I'm like, oh boy, here we go, because it's it, it, the the writer is you know uh, instantly stating that I'm just going to lift from Alien and Aliens. That's what this movie is. And it's like I, there are tons and tons of scripts out there. That are about uh, you know their crew when they come out a cryo chamber and uh, either a uh, an alien gets on or the computer goes nuts or anything like that. It's like you know I, I we can easily say that this is you know two thousand one meets you know the the original Howard Hawks thing and that would be a fair statement. But it's a saying, fuck, dude. If you're gonna, if you're gonna take. Chocolate and peanut butter, and squish them together. I, I that, that's a, that's a pretty good chocolate and peanut butter. You know,
0: it's like well, they I, they acknowledge they lifted from. Um, I mean, Obannon and Chusette, uh at least lifted. You know, from many many films, and I don't think any of them said I invented the cryo chamber either. Right, I, I, right.
1: I, think that I, I kind of like I, in the same way that, like for instance, Tarantino, uh, you know, include, you know, he incorporates like a lot of influences in like a really bald faced kind of way. Yeah. I can say the same about this film, in which it's, it's kind of like, you know, but, you know, the combination thereof is what makes it that unique, makes it that influential. And I would say that uh, this movie, Alien, is kind of what to Pulp Fiction is to, you know, that kind of film. This is what it is to uh, uh, sci-fi and especially horror and sci-fi horror. Uh, you know, you can't get away from this film, from, that, from this movie forward. Mm-hmm. In any way, I, I I think that, you know, if you want to make something truly unique, you would have to, you know, sit down with this film and do everything the exact opposite, if that makes Which is sense.
0: is kind of what they tried to do with Alien 3.
1: Yeah, yeah, very true. I remember reading about that where it's just like, I mean, you know, is there a way to to do a fresh spin on this? And I think that's, you know, that's where they ran into a lot of their famous difficulties on that production. But, you know... um. I mean, it's yeah, it's endlessly influential for a reason. It is a truly great film, and it was with a lot of humor that I was reading the negative uh, reviews from 1979 because look at all of these people who are on the wrong side of history. Apparently, they wasted their fine and pricey MFAs if they were going to come out of film school and become professional uh, film reviewers only to sit down in front of this film and go, I don't like it.
0: Ebert changed his tune, by the way. He later, um, added it to, you know, some of his lists and he wrote a a longer review and I don't know if he actually, I haven't read this, but I don't know if he actually clarified or said I was wrong the first time, but he, he was initially more negative about it than he ended up being.
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: So, um, yeah, I mean, for me, I don't know that I love the movie as much as you do. I mean, I, I feel that, about half of its magic is gone, and I don't really feel like I would love to see it again right now, you know. Um, but I, I certainly admire it, and there are many scenes that that still, you know, uh, have an immortality for me personally, and they always will. One thing that I... Wanted to mention that I didn't, and I'll kind of end with this personally, and if you guys want to say anything about it, feel free. The score, um, I think that the Jerry Goldsmith score is awesome, and a lot of the tracks that they ended up using, they, they lifted from other Goldsmith scores because he didn't really get what they were going for, and he composed a lot of stuff that didn't Uh, suit the the mood of certain scenes so it's kind of a even that is a weird jumbled team effort but it's all except for one uh, I think the final piece of music isn't Jerry Goldsmith but he, he did say that he wanted to create a sense of romanticism and lyrical mystery as he put it in the opening scenes and then build up to suspense and fear and I think he completely accomplished that I mean just watching it the other night Like, the word romantic came to mind for me listening to the the opening strains, the opening title sequence, because it just, it creates that sense of wonder that I was sort of alluding to before that we had watching this film, which is, look at this. Human beings are traveling through the, you know, the great gulf of space, Um, and it sort of evokes uh explorers of the past and and it should because you know that's the cool thing about sci-fi and this could be a whole other conversation and maybe we'll get into it later but sci-fi creates the old west or the frontier all over again because people are isolated, you know, they're in much more dangerous situations, they don't have civilization around the corner, you know, it's a much more hard scrabble, anything can happen, bad things happen on the trail. And, and in a way, this movie is like a bunch of settlers or, you know, a caravan that's running goods from, you know, somewhere from from the wilderness back to civilization, like The Revenant or something, you know, and they run into something uh, in the primordial wilderness.
1: Yeah, the, uh, I mean, what's great about the, the, uh, the lilting and dreamlike nature of the score is it meshes well with uh, the sound design that, that I, I previously mentioned. Is, you know, I mean, the score is very, uh, it's very soft, it's romantic, it's uh, sweeping, it's evoking a um, you know, lonely ship upon an open sea. Yeah. You know, or, or a mystery, or a, you know, la la la. But it's adventurous I, as well. Yeah, because I, I see here's the thing, is I was, when I was watching this, I was thinking would this movie work equally if um, it had a soundtrack, like, or a score like you get from, like, say, It Follows where, like, the mm-hmm. score is going, wow you know, to let you know when things are scary. And uh, in this case, you know, the answer is no. Because the sound design is doing that job for us. You know, by uh, you know we've got alarms and machinery and screaming. And, you know, that's what's doing it. So, I mean, if we had a, a score on top of that, then it would be uh, a redundant jangle, you know, uh, on the sound bed. The alien
0: it's- itself sounds great, too. The yeah. screaming of the
1: alien. Yeah. So, it's like, I, I, I you know, we, we have the, the sound design... Gives us the whap, 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 but, you know, we have the score to give us the no, you know, so. It's I, counterpoint. It, he yeah. said his
0: job was not to uh, complement the visuals as apparently Ridley Scott wanted him to do. His job was to add the emotional element and sort of the human part of it. And it, it does that in an, in an old school way. It's certainly a traditional score.
2: I will say, John. I didn't realize that he didn't provide the the ending piece of music because that is the piece that I feel like doesn't fit. It feels mm. a little too upbeat and a little too, like I, I remember watching the credits and and just thinking, well, this feels odd. Uh, you know, after watching ten people or you know six people get murdered, and it's like, do 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 do. Yeah, I mean, I I don't, I don't know exactly what it was, but it was very sort of upbeat and and I don't know. It was it, it didn't fit. Uh, but but I, I agree, the rest I, of the score is perfect
1: no I, I I think it works as a way to send the audience out of the theater to knowing that everything is okay now that that you know it's, it's like she's been it, it's a final release uh, of tension you know it's fine she's gonna be okay she's got her cat the shuttle will make it home you, uh the good guy won so to speak and uh you know you can go home and and be okay with it
2: well, it certainly does seem that after this discussion of the movie, ending it with a final release seems fitting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I in, think we've... In we've... space, no one can hear you orgasm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Dallas's porn collection, uh, <laughs> hopefully that will be released on future special features of, of this uh, set, and uh, we will embark forward and, and check out uh, the James Cameron sequel next time. Uh, it's been a pleasure, guys. Uh, I thought this was uh, a lot of fun, as I knew it would be, and I'm looking forward to our next one.
2: You're here. Take it
1: easy.
0: Adios.